I wear a ring most days that goes all the way back to my graduation from uh, Bible college. And um, it's, uh, it's an old style ring. Um, it's, it's good if you need to punch somebody in the face. It's one, no, I'm teasing. I'm just teasing. But, but on, over the stone, back over 40 years ago, I had them put a little cross. So it's not just a stone, but there's a cross on the stone. And the other day, my oldest grandson, Seth, who is four years old, he looked at it and noticed something was wrong. What happened, like if, if this is the cross, one of the arms of the cross has fallen off. So and I have a cross like this. And um, it's probably an easy fix. I just haven't taken it in. But Seth looked at it and looked at me, looked at it again. And he said, uh, Papa, that's almost Jesus. Now, what he was trying to say is that's almost the cross. And I started thinking about that later. I thought, oh, Lord, as we move into a new day and our country faces new challenges, um, help us to not be almost Jesus. Help us to reflect you well. Now, when I talk about challenges, I'm not talking about who's in the White House because the challenges we're facing, many of them we would face regardless of who's in the White House. That's not what this is about. I have said, and it's not a popular thing, but I've said that we are going through a period of judgment as a nation. And one of the things that we have to deal with is how do we act? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book that I recommend to you probably 50 years ago called How Shall We Then Live? In other words, he says we are Christians living in a secular community. And he says we've had the advantage of of being Christians in what has been designated as a Christian nation. But he said, we are becoming more and more secular. Now, regardless of your political views, I don't think you can deny that we are not becoming more and more secular. The religious uh, life of Christians was first embraced, then rejected. Uh, then we kind of saw a toleration but if things go the way our politicians are saying they will go, we're going to see a, a, a rejection, an utter rejection um, uh, and, and, and a marginalization of Christianity. So what I'm talking about today, when I say we have a new day ahead of us, I'm not talking about a new political day. I'm talking about we, the, the heart of America is the problem. Not who's in the White House or who's in the governor's office or who controls the Senate or the House of Representatives. That has a bearing. But loved ones, until we understand that the problem is not with who sits in the White House, that can, be, that can exacerbate the problem or it can lessen the problem. But what we need to understand is that the problem is the heart of Americans, the people that have an evil agenda wouldn't have power to execute an evil agenda unless we gave them the power. So we need to understand, I know we've come through a rough year and I know you can say Jesus is Lord and people take offense at the way you said it. But I, I want you to know that I believe that we are, as a nation are under judgment and the church is about to face an era that we've never faced in our culture and it's ongoing. 
Now, I, I want to talk to you today about walking in the way of love. Uh, that sounds hokey. It sounds like a sloppy, agape message of a pastor that's got to preach on Sunday but doesn't really want to say anything. Walk in the way of love. But it's actually a very powerful concept. And I believe it's what God is calling us to understand in a fresh new way. Don't be insulted and don't become prideful if you think, well, we're just kind of going back to basics. That's exactly what we're doing. We're going to learn to walk this out so that our Christianity is bright, whether a Republican is in the White House or a Democrat's in the White House. Whether this party controls Congress or that party controls Congress. Loved ones, I, I know, I've said it, elections make a difference. And I hope this is the last time I say this. Hopefully forever. I doubt it, but I hope. I'm, I'm tired of talking about it. As tired as you are of hearing it, elections have consequences and it does make a difference how we vote. But I refuse for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be held hostage by American elections. And we've got to get back to focusing our eyes on Jesus. We've got to understand that our kingdom is not of this world. That's what Jesus said. We're doing our best to make it of this world. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we need to take some steps back and, and understand some principles. And that's what we're talking about as we continue our study, fight the good fight of faith. Now, 1 Peter 4.8 says this, above all, keep fervent in your heart or in your, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, it's not that God wants us to love just because that's the sweet thing to do. It's not that God wants us to love just because that makes everything beautiful. I was reading in my devotion today, God, you know, Moses sent nearly 300 people to hell with their clothes on. And they were, they were in rebellion against God. And he said, God, you've got to do something, you know. And, and it, God said, okay, I'll answer your prayer. And the ground swallowed up uh, those that were in rebellion against God. And that'll spur a revival. You know, that'll spur a revival. Um, the funny thing about it, though, is that you read in the next chapter, the rebellion surfaced again. So the problem is not always what we think it is. It's our heart. And he says, if we can begin to walk in love, it will cover, it will mitigate, it will atone for a multitude of sins. Now, here's the central truth that we want to look at today. We are entering a season when God's love for the world and our, and our, and for, and our love for each other will return to center stage in our lives. Jesus said, by this shall all people know you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. John 13, 35, and then there's six or eight other verses that you can look at when you have time. About, oh man, it must have been 20, 22 years ago. We were still over in the other building. Um, we had Paul Olson here. And many of you remember Paul Olson, uh, just, a, just a great guy. He's in the presence of the Lord now, but he brought uh, such powerful words to us as an evangelist. The first time I had Paul preach for me, it was probably in about 1990 or so. Um, yeah, probably about 1990. And it was 
obviously in another church, I was not here by then. It was the first message that I'd ever heard dealing exclusively with forgiveness, love in terms of forgiveness. Now I'd been taught all my life that I needed to forgive. I'd been taught all my life that I needed to love, but he did a phenomenal job of teaching that if we really live in the love of God, it will produce a fruit in us called forgiveness. And I, I told him afterwards, I said, um, I said, Paul, you'll never know how appropriate this message was because he was dealing with our people forgiving their sins uh, or, or uh, for, forgiving others that had sinned against them and repenting of unforgiveness and bitterness. I said, you, he didn't know what the church was going through. I said, there's no way you could know how appropriate and how on target this message was today. And this is what Paul Olson said to me. He said, Stephen, I could preach this message in any church in America on any Sunday of the year, and it would be the message of the hour. The greatest lack in our churches is forgiveness. He said, so few people know how to forgive. So few walk in the path of love. So few even want to. But when the church in America learns to lovingly forgive, we will begin to see an awakening like we haven't seen since the days of Jonathan Edwards. He said, the most frightening thing is that when the opportunity comes, we may not be willing to walk in it. I wrote that down a long time ago and I've wondered when we would see that day, but I think we may be approaching that day now when God is calling the church, all of us and every church, every pastor, before we begin to march forward and receive the harvest that he has promised, he may be dealing with us about the issue of forgiveness. R.T. Tyndall, R.T. Tyndall, did great in his book, We've Never Been This Way Before. He talked about why he believed America was under judgment. And he said, this is what we need to do to, uh, uh, to uh, get back in line with God and the word of God. But this is one thing he said and spent a little bit of time on. He said, everybody that has been done wrong, he said, which is most of us on one level or another. He said, until we learn to forgive Totally. That sounds like RT, doesn't it? Until we learn to forgive, we're short-circuiting what God wants to do. Now, let me, let me just move on a little bit here. Um, I, I want to share my burden with you. I was praying a few days ago. Um, uh, I had been praying for a, a season. Um, praying especially for our children. I, I've always had a burden for our children. I've always felt that... Um, um, technically, when somebody says the church is one generation away from extinction, uh, we know the church will never become extinct. But I think there are some places and some cultures that the church is a generation away from extinction. That's why we have to teach our children. I've told you about the man that I met in Belgium at uh, International Media Ministries there in uh, Brussels near the Waterloo battlefield. And he was a, a Christian from the Soviet Union, the, the then Soviet Union. And 
he said, um, I, I just, we were talking about the difference between serving the Lord in a free country and serving the Lord in the Soviet Union. He said there, and it's an interesting conversation. I don't have time to go into it, but this is what he said about one dynamic. He said, I remember the hard years and I talked to other uh, people that went through it. Some called it the hard years. Some called it the dark years. He said, especially in the 50s and 60s, he said, and 70s, uh, and this would have been in the late 80s, he told me this, it was before the collapse of the Soviet Union. He said, we understood, our children were not allowed to go to church in many of those years. Parents could go um, as long as they didn't introduce their faith into the public arena, but we could not take our children. So we had to teach our children at church uh, Christian principles at home. He said, and it was so difficult because the Soviet educational system was so powerful. He said that we would often spend afternoons and evenings deprogramming our children and arguing them out of the conclusions that they had been made, uh, that they had made hearing the teachers at school. Um, I talked to a man who's, uh, who grew up in, uh, in Cuba in the early 60s, and uh, right after Fidel Castro came to power. And he said, it's hard for a five or six-year-old mind to understand when the teacher says, pray to Jesus for candy. And the children would ask Jesus to give them candy, and no candy comes. He says, now close your eyes and ask our glorious leader, Fidel Castro, to give you candy. And they would close their eyes and ask him. The teachers would empty out bags of candy on the desk. He said, it's difficult when you have to spend every evening arguing your child out of an argument they had been taught in school. And I, I was praying and I, I was, I, I've always prayed, but I was particularly burdened for our youth. I, I started reading about statistics and uh, I, I, I read where one church growth expert says that 60% of people that went to church this time last year will never come back to church. Um, some of them will just drift. Others will decide they'd rather stay home and, and listen online. And it's not that they're walking away from church, but they, they don't come back. And he said a particular consequence is some of the younger generations he said, the statistic already, now statistics can lie, I know that. Statistics, like polls, depend on how you ask the question. But this same person said 84% of Christian teenagers who love the Lord, go to camp, go to youth service every week, when they leave home, 84% of them never come back to church. And there are reasons for that, we'll talk about that some other time. But I looked at it and I, I, I got so troubled about that. I was crying and, and I, I felt so sick I wanted to throw up. And I said, Lord, don't let our children be statistics. Don't let us be statistics. According to this, we are going to fail with our, with our younger generation and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I'd been praying about that for several days. And one night I got up to go to another room in the house. I don't know what it is about that room. It becomes more and more special to me as I get older. 
But um, I'm talking about the bathroom. Come on, pay attention. <laughs> it was the middle of the night and I got up and, and halfway to the bathroom, something happened that had never happened to me before. I was just seized. I was seized at the foot of the bed. I thought I was going down. I remember putting my hand down on the bed and, and putting it on Ramona's foot, trying to, to I, I didn't know what was happening. But the whole world around me just left, and I had a vision uh, of myself, and that's what I wrote down for you. I saw myself walking the hall between the bedrooms of our home, but I was a younger man, maybe 20 to 25 years ago. As I did almost every night, I would get up sometime in the hours between midnight and dawn, I did this almost every night, to check on my children to pray over them, to check all the doors. And in the quiet still of the night, I would pray to the Father who sees in secret. It might be 15 minutes, it could be an hour, but it's just a ritual that I had. I wanted to know that my children were covered. I wanted them to know that they were being prayed for. I didn't go and wake them up. I hardly ever, I can count on one hand the number of times I woke up a child intentionally. Sometimes, I, uh, I, he showed me, sometimes I'd pray for a moment. Other times, the prayer time was extended. Sometimes I would stand in the doorway. Sometimes I would go to the bed and stand at their side. At other times, I would lay my hand upon their sleeping heads or kiss them on their cheek. Always, always, I would speak over them the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and, and so forth and variations of it. I would whisper in their ear that I love them. I would whisper in their ear that I was proud of them. I would whisper that I would protect them. I assured them that nothing harmful could get to them, that anything harmful would have to come through me first. And, and by this time, I'm, I'm, I'm weeping because I, I thought, yes, I've done that. I did that for years for every one of my children. Loved ones, I want to tell you what one of the things you want to have as a treasure in your heart. You want it to be said that there's never been a day your child was alive that you did not pray for them. And in the vision, I heard myself saying, thank you for my children. Thank you for blessing them and keeping them. And then I heard in the spirit, and I will bless as well. I will visit your children and their children and their children's children. I myself will speak to them blessing. I will whisper in their ear assurances and even if they wander, I will lead them back home so they can recover their identities. I will honor your prayers and the prayers of their fathers and mothers shall be honored as well. And then I knew in my spirit that he was speaking of all of our children. He said, many of them have been set aside as statistics. And I understood that to mean that some have just said, well, they've got to make their own decision. They're going to go their own way. Only a few are going to make it. He said, but I've never seen them as such. I've never seen them as statistics. I am the shepherd who, who pursues the wandering lambs. And I was reminded as I began to come back into the reality of the moment, uh, he reminded me that the great sin of the children of Israel when God was leading them out is they said, God, you're not able to take care of our children. Our children are going to be a prey. In our vernacular, our children are going to become a statistic. 
And God said, I will show you that your children are not statistics because I will bring them into the land that you yourself will not possess. Now, the Lord had been dealing with me about this for a while. I want to talk to you that the burden of the Lord, as we know, is to bless our children. He, Acts 2 tells us that his desire is for generational blessing. It'll come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And on servants and, and, and handmaidens and, and leaders, he said, I will pour out my spirit on that day. Now, remember also, we've talked about this, but the final prayer before his arrest in John 17, Jesus said, Father, do this for me. Do this for the church. Help them to know they are secure. I keep them. I keep them. I keep them. Help them to remain pure, spiritually pure, and to not be in this world even though, I mean, to not be of this world even though they are in this world. That's what we're going to talk about next week, how to be in the world but not of the world. And he said, give them unity. Now, we are in... An age right now where the spirit of the, the age is disharmony, is disunity, is rage, is offense. And loved ones, I'm, I'm not talking about all, I'm not going to talk about all the social ills and the reason for the age of rage. But I'm telling you in this age, what Jesus calls us to is not rage, but it's unity and love. And it sounds so hokey. It sounds so hokey. I mean, it sounds hokey. I want words from the Lord where I say, oh, 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 yes, Lord, here I am, send me. But this is a word where you just want to say, yeah, right. Unity, love. Unity is linked with love. Now we know the priority is love and we know the preeminent thing is love. We know that from 1 Corinthians 13, but we still need to be reminded. I'm just put these in the notes for you. Unity is not uniformity. And please understand this, political parties, Republican, Democrat, whatever, they have a tendency to call uniformity unity. They say we want to be united, but what they really say is we want you to believe what we believe and we'll be united. No, that's called uniformity, not unity. Uh, my wife and I are different and I am so glad that we are different. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't want her to have a body like mine. I don't want her to have a disposition like me. No, we are different, but we are perfectly formed for each other. So we are in unity, but not uniformity. Um, we need to understand that unity is seldom automatic. Uh, I, you know, there were, I know there were 10 days that had to be fulfilled prophetically between the resurrection of Christ and, um, and Pentecost. I know that it was a prophetic thing. They had to wait 10 days, but one of the byproducts of them coming together and praying is that they got in one accord. They got in unity. And the indication was that they might not have been up until that time. Uh, we uh, need to understand that we can and must pray for unity. We need to understand that we serve one another in order to fan it into flame. 
We share with one another when in need and we understand that love is the fuel of unity. Now let's go to number four on your outline. There are two paths upon which we may walk. I've talked about this before and I'm not repeating it because I didn't know what to preach. I just think it's the best illustration um, of the point that I can come up with. The church today Everyone associated with our church and every church in America has got to decide if they're going to become an umpire or a lifeguard. An umpire or a lifeguard. Now, you say, what's an umpire? An umpire, it doesn't matter who's running the bases. He'll call his friend out just as well as he'll call his enemy out. A strike, if an umpire is a just umpire, uh, if the pitch hits the inside corner, even if it was close, if it hit within the boundaries, it's a strike. He's never say, says, oh, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to the batter. No, he's interested in law. Now, that's what a lot of us are this is what a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors have carried out of 2020. Um, what we need is a revival and we need to set everything right that's wrong. So I'm going to be an umpire. Now let me tell you the way an umpire works. The preeminent umpire, I, I loved uh, uh, Yogi Berra talking about his battle with umpires. He said, because he was a catcher and he would have conversations with them, make them so mad, you know. And Yogi Berra slid one time into third and the call was close. And the umpire watching over the play just stood there a moment. And Yogi looked at him and said, well, am I safe or am I out? The umpire, knowing that Yogi gave him a hard time, he looked at him and said, you ain't nothing till I say so. <laughs> As an umpire. He cares about what I see and what I say. In the movie, The Fugitive, I mean, it's probably, I don't know, 20 years old by now or close to it. Tommy Lee Jones did such a good job uh, portraying Inspector Gerard, who was the U.S. Marshal sent to track down Richard Kimball, played by Harrison Ford. One of the most telling moments in that movie uh, is when we see Tommy Lee Jones, Inspector Gerard, the umpire, uh, all he's concerned about is rules. You've been cited as guilty. You're to be executed. That's all I care about. And Tommy Lee, uh, uh, Richard Kimball has the drop on him. He's holding a gun on him. And he realizes, the inspector does, that I can be killed by this criminal right now. And, but the problem is Dr. Kimball's not a killer. Even in those circumstances, he's not going to shoot the U.S. Marshal. So he says something that you can see from his expression coming from the, the flow of his heart. I didn't kill my wife. I mean, anybody with one eye and half sense could see this is the cry of this man's heart. I didn't kill my wife. And you know what the umpire does? He looks at him and says, I don't care. Guilt or innocence a, a misapplication of justice was not in his horizon. All he knew is that this is what the paper says. You deserve to be executed. I don't care if you killed your wife or not. You're going to be executed. And loved ones, that's the way legalists are. Um, we, we don't like the Pharisees, uh, or at least not most of them, 
because by the time of Jesus, they were legalists and they were, uh, Jesus said, you will strain at a gnat. You know, he said, a gnat will get in your mouth and you'll, you'll go. <laughs> he said, and then you'll turn around and swallow a camel without a moment of problem. That's the way judges are. That's what the Pharisees became. And the Bible tells us that just like the Pharisees, do you know they started as a holiness movement? Their name, Pharisee, comes from a word that means to separate unto holiness. They were so intense in their pursuit of God that uh, they became like the church in Ephesus. They were rigidly uh, living according to the law, but there wasn't an ounce of mercy in them for the most part. Or we can walk the way of the lifeguard. To understand a lifeguard, a lifeguard, now a lifeguard doesn't disregard the law. A lifeguard understands that you're in trouble because you've broken the law and I'm going to bring you back. See, a lifeguard says, oh, there's somebody drowning out there. Well, stupid. We told them not to go out that far. There's a rip current today. We told them not to, you know, go where they're at, not to swim alone. They're, they're now, that, now they can't get back in. They don't even have a, a raft or anything out there. Well, maybe we ought to just let them be an example to the others. No, you know what a lifeguard does? A lifeguard, knowing that the person has probably broken the rule, knowing that the lifeguard, I mean, knowing that the person has probably violated every warning of the lifeguard, he sets aside guilt and he goes and brings the person in. Now, when he gets the person back, he'll let them cough up the water. He'll let them be sure they're okay. Paramedics will check them out. And then he'll give them a lecture about the rule they broke. But his concern is not law. His concern is life. We have got to decide as a church, what are we going to do? You say, well, yeah, but you got to, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, your Bible, I mean, your notes, um, Say it's in number six. I wrote down the wrong chapter. It's in numbers five. It was called the, the adultery test. Now, I've never heard this preached on in my life. Um, but when you look at Torah, when you look at Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, and especially Exodus through Deuteronomy, you have the Old Testament law that Israel was to walk by. Now, there are some things in there that are hard. There are some things in there that are difficult to understand. This is one of them. This sounds like something coming out of Harry Potter, not the Bible. And I don't say that disrespectfully, but every time I read it, I, I, I think, wow. But can I tell you this? Y'all listen to me for just a moment. A lot of people talk about the harsh Old Testament God, that he went through therapy and now he's a nice God in the New Testament. No, God doesn't need anger management and God doesn't need a new PR man. God was intensely rigid and strong in the Pentateuch because he was not only giving them rules to live by, he was giving them principles to live by. And God dealt very fiercely with sin in the Old Testament because Israel did not understand the nature of sin. 
And, uh, you know, that's why there were such severe punishments for things that to us would be trivial. Um, I'm not willing to stone a child because they were disrespectful to their parents. Every one of us would be dead or at least have a cracked skull. I mean, it's not that I'm doubting the law of God. God was saying, you don't understand, family and honoring parents is so important. It's more important than we think. Because he said, if you want to stay in the land a long time. See, when he said, if you want to live long in the land, he wasn't saying obeying your parents will give you a long life. He was saying, if you want to stay in the land that I've given you, he said, if you want to stay there a long time, you start by obeying father and mother. That's how important it was. And a child that was in rebellion was to be stoned. Now, and, and of course, we can read and understand that that was perpetual rebellion. But I'm saying that's pretty tough. Um, um, a, a, a man or woman who committed adultery were to be stoned. That's, it, it's harsh. But God is wanting us to understand how he feels about things. One professor in Bible college helped me this way. He said, we live under grace. We live under mercy. And we live under the principles where Israel lived under the rules. He said, but if you want to know how God really feels about something, he said, go to the Pentateuch. He says, it is not no longer for us. He said, it is an example for us. And if you want to know how God feels about things like adultery, if you want to know how God feels about worshiping foreign gods, if you want to know how God feels about broken vows, he says, he says, go to the old Testament and see what initial first response God gave to it. And I have to remember that when I read Numbers 5, when I read through the Bible every year, because it was called the test of adultery. And uh, it's chapter 5, 11 through 31, not 6, 11 through 31. Um, but in chapter 5, this is what the Bible says. Moses said, if a man becomes jealous of his wife. Now, that's the way it's translated in New American Standard and some others. But really, the word is suspicious. Suspicious. If he becomes suspicious that his wife has committed adultery, but there is no proof, she hasn't been caught in the act because God was, was rigid, but he was also fair. There had to be witnesses. And he said, if the husband becomes suspicious of his wife, he can bring her to the priest and he can present a grain offering and the priest would say to the woman, um, I am preparing for you the water of bitterness that brings a curse. He would take holy water. Now, this again, this is not Harry Potter. This is the Bible. And don't do this at home. This was for Israel. It's not for us. The principles that it teach are for us, but we, we, we're not bound by that system. And he, he would take the holy water and then he would reach down and get some dirt. Some versions say dust off of the, the uh, tabernacle floor, he would pick it up or the temple floor. He'd put it in the cup and just make a muddy mess. And he would give the woman the, uh, the offering of grain that the husband had brought. She was to wave that before the Lord. And this cup of muddy water was now called the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And this is what it says in the Bible. If you have committed adultery, even though there's no proof, God knows. 
And when you drink this cup, it'll make your thigh shrivel and your belly swell up. Now, when thigh, thigh shrivel, that's your biggest muscle. It meant that you would not have the strength to stand and there would be an internal growth in your belly that would bring death and you would be cursed from the land forever. You say, my word, what if she was innocent? She had to drink that cup. And she had to bear up under the gaze and the scrutiny of her husband watching to see if she was telling the truth. And if she was, the husband said, okay, I was wrong. And they would go home and she was expected to behave as usual and the Lord would bless her with children. Now, there was a man in the New Testament that had the right for this test to be done on his wife. They were engaged. The marriage had not been consummated sexually, but you were just as committed to each other during engagement as you were marriage. Joseph was engaged to a woman named Mary. She ends up being pregnant. It becomes very obvious that she's pregnant. Joseph knows it's not him. He was a righteous man, a just man with a reputation known all over town. And now his wife, by every indicator, has committed adultery. You say, oh, pastor, we know what happened. The, the virgin will conceive. And the angel came and told her what was going to happen. And she was bumfuzzled. She said, how can this be? I'm not married. And he said, the, the power of God will come upon you. And this will be a miraculous conception. Without sexual intercourse, you will become with child. And this child shall save the people from their sins. And we say, it's a no-brainer. That's because we have 2,000 years between us and that event. We have the full explanation in Scripture. It's easy for us to say, well, if that happened to my wife, I would have understood. Yeah. It had never happened before. It, had never, it has never happened since. And here he is with his bride-to-be probably 15, maybe 16 years old. And every indicator in the world says she cheated on you. She violated her vow to you. She did you wrong. But the scripture makes an amazing statement. I'll tell you about it in, 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 this, in this way. The gospels say, but, but Joseph was not willing to put her to a public disgrace. So he was going to put her away privately. I want to tell you what Joseph decided. He said, I've got every right in the book to be an umpire. My character is being questioned. My love appears to have been rejected. She has been unfaithful. I have the right. But there was something that changed the whole thing. He said, because I love her, I will not put her to this shame. When I was reading that text, I wasn't even thinking about Joseph. I was reading and I thought, man, the test for adultery. I said, this is, this is 
this is primitive, but God was teaching something. That's another sermon for another time. And I promise you, if we ever teach on the test of adultery, we won't, you won't see a bunch of cups lined up as you come in the building. Joseph had to make a decision. Was he going to be an umpire or a lifeguard? And as I thought about this, before I started thinking about Joseph, I thought about, well, this, this, this is not the only way that God said, um, I will answer supernaturally so that you'll know. There was the Urim and the Thummim, the, the stones that the high priest wore that apparently would light up supernaturally if the answer was this or the answer was the other. There was the casting of the lots that wasn't just a game of chance. They believed that God controlled the casting of the lots and God's will was known by the way those things occurred. God was saying, I know everything, but you don't always hear me right, so I'll give you tests to pursue. Now, thankfully, he doesn't work that way in our midst today because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But as I read that, I thought, this is horrible if she's guilty. It's horrible. Her, her, she would drink that after waving an offering to the Lord and her legs would collapse and her belly would begin to swell. And if she survived it, she would be driven out of the camp and called a curse. But then I began to think, what if she was innocent? Well, you say, that's not too bad. She worshiped the Lord and drank dirty water. I've done worse than that on Royal Ranger campouts. No, do you have any idea what it would mean for this young woman to have a husband looking on saying, I don't believe you and I am willing to risk you dying a horrendous death because I've got suspicions? Well, I want to tell you, and at that moment I thought of my wife. I just, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. I just saw an image of her beautiful face. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. In fact, it may, it, it, I don't even know what it means except I started crying and I said, I could never do that to her. Because even if she was innocent, she'd never get over my suspicion. And I, I said, Lord, I want to always walk in the way of love. I had that phrase on my mind because of the sermon. And then I thought of Joseph. Joseph said, I could do all of this. I could demand all of this. She can get her feelings hurt if she wants. She can pout if she wants. But this is my right. And loved ones, I think God is putting many of us in his church in the place of Joseph these days. It has been a year when our hurts and our fears have been brought to the surface, when a sense of unfairness has been brought to the surface, when the inability to have a dialogue or a conversation seems to be brought to the surface and everything that has hurt us or everything that makes us angry or everybody that has disappointed us or every politician that's in the process of disappointing us. We have raised our hand. And you know what? It doesn't take much for a hand to go from this to this. And I think that's what is happening in the church. You say, well, you're just trying to shame us. No, 
I, I'm, I, I couldn't point at somebody and say, you've done this, you've done this. I couldn't do that. I'm saying it is the spirit of the age and it is the spirit that is trying to root itself in the church of Jesus. It's the spirit that's trying to push its way through us. And we've got to decide, do we want to be umpires or do we want to be lifeguards? Now, let me begin to wrap this up because um, I know we, we went over a little bit in our preliminaries and I'm, I'm trying to hurry and get through. But um, two events happened about the same time in my life. I was, I was uh, about, I guess, maybe 10 or 11 years old. The first thing that happened is my dog, Rusty, hanged himself. No, it wasn't suicide. Um, I had a wonderful dog all through my childhood. He lived uh, probably 12 years and all through my childhood. He was a chow chow that was very protective of me. His name was Rusty. And sometimes when people would come over, if he didn't act like he liked them, we would put Rusty on a leash just for safety for the kids that were playing. And um, when the kid would go, I'd release Rusty from his leash. Well, to make a long story short, I put him on his leash. My friends and I played. I went in the house and forgot he was on his leash. And when I went out to turn him loose so he could get his, his evening meal, I realized he had jumped the fence trying to get away from that leash. And his bottom legs were just barely touching the ground. He was hung like this. His eyes were beginning to bulge out. And he was growling. And if he could have just gone six inches further, he could have relieved the pressure. But he couldn't. And he had been that way I don't know how long. Um, we tried to undo his collar and he would snap at us. And I tried to put my arms around him to lift him up. And throw him back over the fence. But he clawed at me and tried to bite my face off. I, I didn't know what to do. And finally, I just, I had the presence of mind. I, 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 I couldn't get the, the leash loose. But I got a knife and I cut the leash on the other side of the fence. And he fell down and wouldn't let me anywhere near him roamed the neighborhood for a couple of hours, finally came home and he was okay. At the same time, uh, within a few weeks of that, uh, I was in the fifth grade. There was a girl, uh, we'll, we'll call her name Helen. I won't give you her real name, but Helen was just one of the, go I, you, you know how, how harsh kids can be at that age, 10, 12 years old, they can be heartless. Um, and, and she was different. I think that she probably was of Native American descent. Um, I'm not sure, but she was just different enough that she was picked on by a lot of the kids in the class. And the reason it got started was just, she was just mean. She was just so mean. And um, I was beginning, again, I'm not patting myself on the back, but this was a time that God was beginning as a, to show me as a child how to live out. Uh, the gospel message and the golden rule. And I noticed that she would be surrounded sometimes and at the playground and was always the object of, of just mean spirited things. And um, I went up to her and I said, I'm, I'm going to, 
Now we're in the fifth grade. I'm going to, I'm going to be her friend. So we lined up before school every day outside and I walked up to her and I said, good morning, Helen. And she looked at me and scowled and she said, what the blank do you mean by that? I didn't even know how to answer. It shocked me. I just, I just, I mean, I just backed up. I didn't know what to do. I tried two or three more times and it, it was like whenever I tried to speak to her, it was just an, an anger and a wrath. And I, I didn't know, I knew that I wasn't doing anything wrong. But it got so bad after one particular event, I, I went home and I told my mom what had happened. And this is what my mom wrote to me. Aren't you glad I keep a journal? She said, Steve, you've got to understand that some people are so hurt they don't know how to respond to kindness. They're just mean and every time you try to be nice, you just get growls and bites. When you try to help, you feel like you're putting yourself in danger, but they act so mean because they don't want to be hurt again. That's all they've ever known. Everybody else has hurt them and they figure you'll hurt them too. Now we would find out later there was abuse at home. I didn't know that, my parents did. She said, remember when Rusty tried to bite you? She said, that old hound dog would fight a grizzly bear for you, but he was hurting and he was scared. He just wanted to be free. This girl has probably faced things you and the other kids don't know anything about. Just ask the Lord to help you see a way to help her get free. You're probably going to find there isn't much you can do but maybe just loving her might be enough to help her in the long run. Well, I went and tried and it didn't help. <coughs> As I said, that was about 1965, 66. Uh, fast forward to 1972 to the Municipal Auditorium in Pensacola to the first David Wilkerson crusade I'd ever attended. David Wilkerson said, we're packed here tonight, but every Jesus person who wants to come on up here on the stage and sit with me. And I thought, Jesus person, that's me. And I got up there with the Jesus people and realized I wasn't a Jesus person. I was a very sheltered white church kid. I mean, I, 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 everybody else would have been sent home from school except me. I mean, I was setting the stage. And as I sat there, not four feet from David Wilkerson thinking this must be what it was like to sit at the feet of Jesus. I looked at the girl sitting just a few feet in front of me and I realized it was Helen. I realized it was her. And I watched her as David Wilkerson preached. I could see in her eyes hunger and I could see in her eyes as the sermon went on hope David Wilkerson said, there are some of you here that you've just got caught up in the Jesus movement, but you've never made Jesus Lord of your life. You've never learned what it is to be set free. And if you want to be set free, he said, I want you to join my associate over here to the right. And I knew I was saved. I knew I was free from the kind of things he was talking about. But I saw Helen stand up and I saw her walk over and get in that line, tears just flowing of 
when I knew her and back in elementary school, I'd never seen anything but anger. I think I actually saw demonic, was too young in the Lord to, to recognize it in her eyes. But now that she's crying and I see hunger and hope. You say, well, I know what you're going to tell me. You all became good friends. No, I never saw her again. I never saw her again. But I've wondered every now and then, ever since that day when I was a teenager, if maybe, just maybe, the kindness and love that I tried to show took root and broke the bondages of her life. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm telling you in the days that are ahead, and this is going to be a tough year if the government does all they say they're going to do. It's going to be a tough year for churches. If they do what they say they're going to do, it's going to be an easy year for abortionists. It's not going to be, well, the election's over, everything's fine. I don't know when or if ever it will be that way. But I tell you one thing we can control. You can't control what happens to you. You can't control what happens around you, but you can control what happens in you. And the question is, am I going to be a lifeguard or am I going to be an umpire? We've gone over, but let me, let me give you quickly the four life lessons. First of all, sin is a serious thing. It can only be dealt with by the shedding of blood. Joseph understood that with Mary. Sin is a very, very serious thing. And understand this, the grace of God isn't saying you've sinned, but it doesn't matter. Um, grace is saying you've sinned and it matters, but someone has paid the price. That's why the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. You say, well, why did God go to such a bloody system of sacrifices? Because it was not in the mind of man how grievous their sin was. And since life is in the blood, God wanted them to understand this is the most serious thing you can do, this thing called sin. And only by the loss of life can it be atoned for. Number two, there's a balance between law and mercy that few understand clearly. You see, the law didn't say you're guilty and grace say, oh, don't worry about it. No, the law said you're guilty. The price had to be paid. So Jesus became a man. God becomes a man. He dies on the cross after living a sinless life. He dies a substitutionary death. And the reason you and I have the hope of heaven is not because we got our act together. It's because Jesus paid a debt we could not pay throughout eternity. See, we don't understand that when the scriptures describe Jesus, it says he was full of grace and truth. See, we think in terms of where well, you got to be full of grace or mercy. Or you got to be full of truth. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not going to let people off the hook. I'm going to be full of truth. Jesus was full of truth and full of grace. To the woman in adultery, he says, go your way and don't do this anymore. He paid the price for her sin, but also forgave her the consequences of her sin. That's why in 1 John, I love this verse and I love it in the King James it says, um, 
my little children, I think it's chapter 2 of 1 John, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here it is, one of those $4 theological words. And he is the propitiation for our sin. And not just for ours in the church, but for the sins of the whole world, whosoever will may come. That word propitiation simply means this, the full satisfaction. What he did for us was enough to pay for our rebellion. Here's the third thing. Umpires deal with law, but lifeguards deal with life. Grace and mercy says this is the law and the law must be kept. But if it's not kept, there's a provision. And it's called forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And he said, that's so powerful. You need to walk in that forgiveness toward others. That's why he said in Galatians 6, he says, when someone is overtaken in a fault, when someone does something stupid, they sin against God, he says, restore them and restore them in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself because you could be tempted in the same way. To all of our budding Pharisees, let me tell you, your, your insistence on judgment and justice is admirable. Judgment and justice come from the heart of God. But it comes from the heart of God. And what I want to ask you is this. While we work our way through this world full of offense, full of hurt, full of misunderstanding, full of sins that have not been set right, and we ought to set things right, justice ought to flow like a river, Corruption ought to be exposed and done away with. I'm not talking about turning our head or turning a blind eye to evil. But as we work through those things, you have the choice. And I can't make it for you. I can make it for a church. I can say this is the way we will deal with things as a church. I can deal with it as a pastor. But ultimately, you have to make the decision. Are you going to be a lifeguard or are you going to be an umpire? Are you going to cast judgment and not allow any way out for those that have sinned? Or are you going to say, I will be an umpire. I will save you. I'll tell you what you've done wrong and I'll tell you what ought not to be. But I am going to opt for life instead of death. You've got to make that decision. Holy Spirit, here's the last thing. Holy Spirit moves in us and around us in order to help us walk in love. We are given one situation after another to walk in love. You remember Peter's great failure when he denied the Lord? The next time Jesus sees him and has a private conversation with him, he says, Peter, let me ask you something. Do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And he asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And this time Peter was grieved. He was saying something like he doesn't believe me. 
or I haven't proven it to him. Or maybe actions speak louder than words. After all, I told him that I loved more than anyone else and I would never deny him. And he knows that I denied him repeatedly. Well, Peter spoke from his heart and he said, Lord, you know all things. And you know what I believe Peter was saying? He said, Lord, you, you knew all along I was going to deny you. You knew all along I was going to fail. You knew it. You knew it. But you also know when all the dust settles and all my failure is laid on the table and all my judgmentalism of my brothers is laid on the table, you know this with all of my weaknesses, you know that I love you. And that was where Jesus was bringing him. He wanted Peter to understand. He wanted us to understand. Loved ones, there is nothing that has been done to you. There is nothing that is being done against you. There is nothing that you have done that cannot be remedied by walking in love. Nothing. I want you to have tenderness in your families. Parents, I want you to understand that you can scar or you can strengthen your child by the way you talk to them, by the way you speak into their lives. You know, if you're the kind of person that says you'll never amount to anything, your trouble when you were born, your trouble now, you'll be troubled the rest of your life. You are putting a scar on the heart of that child that they may never get over. Speak tenderly to your children. Paul put it this way. He says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Another translation says, don't exasperate them. He says, speak to your children in a way that they're going through hormones and they're going through growth periods. They're going through trials at school. Their body is changing. Their mind is changing. Their face has zits that they never had before. All kinds of things are happening. And he says, don't provoke them to wrath. Don't make it worse. Don't make them angry. Work with them. He says to husbands and wives, dwell with each other according to knowledge and, 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 and love one another. And guys, I want to tell you, I know there are personalities. I know that. But I want to tell you, and I want to tell every one of you, I want to tell you whether you've been married for one year or five years or 45 years. Get your tone of love back in speaking to your wife and speaking to your husband. I, I, I know I know we all have different love languages. I know, we, I know we all have different ways of expression. But being kind fits all the love languages. I told you, and I'm done with this. I told you a few years ago how before I ever came to this church, I was struggling with a problem I'd had with some fellow believers, leadership in a church, and I, I felt, first of all, like most church troubles, there was blame on my part and there was blame on their part. Very few times we have somebody totally innocent. In fact, the only times I know of when one side is totally right is when Ramona gives me trouble. <laughs> now you laugh, but it's usually her that's right. But I'd done everything I knew to do to make restitution. I'd done everything I knew to do to make it right. And I still felt that I was being treated wrong and it was devastating. I, I couldn't sleep. And I, I made a phone call to a person that I considered to be the leader of that 
situation. I poured out my heart to him. I, I said, I'm sorry that I've created my part of the problem. I said, but this is how I feel. And I said, I'm having trouble getting past this. Can we just talk and get past this? And he basically he talked, but there was nothing dealt with. There was nothing corrected. And I realized from the end of the conversation, it was going to be up to me if I got over this or not. I hung up the phone. It hurt me so profoundly and deeply. And I, I know that some of you don't think God speaks this way, but God spoke so clearly to me. He said, this is the way I don't want to, well, I want to be careful what I say. He says, this has been the way of these leaders. This is what they've done year after year after year to other people. This is their lifestyle. This is the way they are. He said, I, I am angry that they are not extending the grace that you asked for, just the forgiveness that you asked for. And there was a lot more said than this, but basically what God said is, They've crossed the line and I will begin to judge them. I will, be, I will begin with a judgment on the church. I will begin with judgments on their families. I'll go down one by one. And it was very systematic. And it was so real and it was so frightening that I fell on my face. And God said, no, I'm going to do this and it will begin tonight. And I was weeping out of fear for them. And in about 20 seconds, I knew God was setting me up. Boy, was he setting me up in a good way. He said, I'll judge them. Or you can drop the charges. Well, it kind of surprised me because this wasn't my problem. It was their problem. And I thought I had forgiven. Well, calling a truce is not forgiveness. He said, you can drop the charges. And God did one of the most amazing works of grace he's ever done in my life that night. It, 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 I didn't say, okay. I mean, I, I, it, it took about 20 minutes or so or longer for me to work through it. But I said, Lord, please do not show judgment. Show mercy. I drop the charges. Now, and he was very merciful to all concerned and I got past it. I preached that story years later to my home church. Before my dad died, he was there. Well, of course, it was before he died if he was there. But uh, my dad was in the service he came up to me after I made the altar call telling people to forgive. I know you've been done wrong, but you've got to let it go. Long before RT's book on total forgiveness, I said it the best way I knew how, not nearly as well as RT would say it. My father came up to me blubbering, just crying. And I didn't know why he did his hands like this. He says, I am holding on to things when I was done wrong, I'm holding on to things when people could have helped and they didn't. And I've been holding it over them all of these years. And through brokenness, he said, I'm so tired of holding the charges up. 
By now I'm crying and I put my hands on his shoulders. And I said, then daddy, drop the charges. Just drop the charges. And I saw him just <sighs> drop to his knees and began to pray. And for the rest of his life, it was probably another seven years he lived. Probably two or three times he said, God will make everything right when you drop the charges. When you drop the charges. You say, well, I know what happened then. Everything that was bothering him was set right. Nah, none of it was set right. But my daddy quit holding up the charges. And loved ones, I just want to tell you, wherever you are, I want to tell you this. This last year has been a year of exposing wrongs and of exposing fear. And this is the year. Right now, you've come to the point where you need to decide, am I going to continue to wage my battle holding up my charges or can I drop them? Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for you to help us because I know what it's like to be unable to forgive. I know what it's like to think I've forgiven and then only have it come back. But Lord, you are so merciful. You are so gracious. You are so kind and you are so helpful. And Lord, I'm not scolding us today. I'm calling us to a place where we can let go of that heavy burden we've been carrying. Do it, I pray. I pray that you'd visit every home. Help us to let go, to drop the charges. Brown Chapel, let them let go of the charges. Here, let go of the charges. People that are angry and hurt haven't got any intention of coming back to church, but maybe they tuned in today and they realize this thing has driven me into isolation. My hurt and my pain has said, I'll never come back to a church because I never want to be hurt again. Loved ones, that's such a heavy load to carry. It's such a heavy load to carry. You say, but I've got a right to put them through the adultery test. I've got a right for them to drink the muddy water. I've got a right for them to be exposed. I know. I'm not going to argue that with you. There are horrible things that have happened. But the question goes back to the one I've been asking for the last 20 minutes. Do you want to be an umpire? Or do you want to be a lifeguard? It's your choice. It might not determine whether or not you go to heaven but it will determine the quality of life you live for Jesus right now. Look this way. The altar ministry teams are moving into position. Again, we've gone, we've gone over. We're trying to work on some things so that we don't keep going over. Um, and we're, we're figuring that out. But um, wherever you are, you can approach the Lord in prayer. If you're here or Brown Chapel, the ministry team is moving into position. And here in the main auditorium, if you want to give your life to Jesus or if you need prayer to help drop the charges, I want you to know we have people ready to pray for you. In here, you go to my right, your left, 
where the ministry teams are going. Brown Chapel, they'll give you direction. At home, you can stop right where you are. Slip into your bedroom if you want to and just find an altar before God there. If you want help and you're not here, our number is on your screen and you can call that number and people are waiting to pray with you and help you. Loved ones, we're going to fight the good fight of faith and we're going to fight with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to fight with the grace of God and our armor is going to be the armor of love and humility. He's going to help us. I love you. God bless you. God bless you. 